This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and I'm joined today by Tony Black. How are you, Tony? I'm pretty good, thanks, Duncan. I think this is the first time we've talked some uh, some Trek in uh, 2022. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, I, it's nice to be back. It is, you're right. Yeah, it's it's been a little while. We're recording in the aftermath of Hurricane Eunice. Not Hurricane, <laughs> Storm Eunice. It well, feels it might like as it well a, be. I don't it know about you. Well it was a hurricane here. Uh, my son's um, Wendy house has disappeared from the garden. <laughs> I found it in a wood. Oh, no, uh, I'm a cut. <laughs> oh, my God. So to get that back. Yeah. And, yeah, we've had... I mean, nothing serious, really, except that uh, we're currently without power. We've been without oh, yeah. power for about 24 hours. It's awful. So I'm recording in the car, which is the only place I can get any charge of any kind to my phone so um oh yeah what about you how did you how did you find the great storm <laughs> the great storm i had a, uh, a very scared dog who was a bit freaked out when several roof tiles uh came off which uh, <laughs> we've got a big look bet, we've got yeah. a big hole in the uh in the in the roof now which is which needs repairing and uh a tree that explosively came down across the road luckily not in our direction um but uh it was just it was very much a day of literally at one point battening down the hatches or in this case a part of a shed <laughs> uh, <laughs> right but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Survived, no <laughs> loss no loss of life or limb though so you know it could be worse it certainly wasn't my vietnam no. No, that that is true. <laughs> so, uh, a seamless segue there, Tony. <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> to the topic. Uh, that, well, I was going to say we're going to be discussing. We're we're not going to be discussing it. You're going to be discussing it with um, Darren Mooney, aren't you? Because this is for the benefit of the listeners. Um, we're going to try something, which is uh, Tony recorded a show, a fairly short-lived show, I guess. On on your we made this network a little while ago called the sanctuary which was kind of a a sort of i don't know would you call it a sister show to primitive culture it had quite a lot in common with primitive culture anyway let's say and partly because i'm finding it very difficult to get shows out at the moment there's a lot going on in my life um not so much the recording it's it's partly the editing trying to get get time to edit them uh and also because there are these shows that i think some of our listeners would be interested in we thought maybe we would repackage a few of them uh, and put them out as primitive cultures. Uh, so there won't be much of me in this episode, but there will be a fair amount of Tony. But it, it just 
talk a little bit about the sanctuary and about uh, this episode in particular, Tony, and what listeners can expect from it. So essentially, the sanctuary was an idea that I gestated to yeah, serve as a sister show, really, to um, primitive culture. There was some potential talk of it being on Trek FM for a time, but that didn't quite work out simply because it, it might have done in an alternate reality, a, a mirror universe, if you like. But in uh, in this case, at the time, this was during the first kind of rollout of the pandemic, I was toying with doing a sister network called We Made Treks on my network, We Made This. Now, that didn't really happen for various reasons in the end, mainly because it was just too big a job, essentially. So a lot of those Trek shows were amalgamated into We Made This broadly. But The Sanctuary was something that I really liked the idea of. It was billed more as a politics and economics podcast in many ways. And it, but but it, but there was a lot of cover uh, overlap really with what primitive culture was doing to the point that I I would we would talk about it and I would say I don't want to make I want to make sure I avoid too many topics that would encroach on primitive culture's territory even if we weren't on the same network really because I wanted to make sure that uh, it didn't get in the way of primitive culture obviously but I thought there was a space to sort of explore a little bit more in depth in the the political and economic side of Trek topics and. The first one we did uh, with myself, with, with I did with Darren, was concerning the political aspects in various Star Trek shows, particularly particularly in the nineteen sixties, that were inspired or linked in some way to the Vietnam War that was happening in the late nineteen sixties. And in the original series, there are multiple episodes, uh, such as things like the Omega Glory. Uh, let that be your last battlefield city on the edge of forever that actually have some really interesting links to vietnam and what was actually happening in the real political world at the time at the end of this you know this tumultuous era of the 1960s and it sort of builds a lot on it, it references to some degree some of some of what i wrote in my book star trek history and us and also what has been done by a writer called h bruce frankly which is where i i uh, got a lot of my information from, which is some fantastic analysis and work. And obviously Darren himself has written about this in a lot of his reviews. So it just made sense to sort of bring it all together. And this was the opening episode of what would have been The Sanctuary, which lasted for around six episodes before time just got in the way, before all the other things I do just got in the way. And uh, and it never really went any further, even though I had absolutely tons and tons of ideas for it. And, you know, who knows? Maybe one day it will come back or, you know, some of it can be parlayed into discussions we have or whatever. But there's some potentially fascinating conversations to come. But that's essentially what this is. And I I think it's a really interesting chat. And obviously, Darren is always fantastic to talk to. He's got an incredible mind. But uh, I think we went to some really interesting places that maybe might, might make you think about some of those original series episodes in a slightly different way. So I'm really glad this is being repurposed for uh, for primitive culture. It certainly made me think in a different way about some of those episodes. I mean, the the big one for me, thinking about Vietnam, is a private little war. And I had sort of, on the back burner for years, we'd had, I think because the guys at Metatrex at one point sent us a message saying, you know, why don't you guys do Vietnam? And I had just been sort of shying away from it because I guess, you, you know, I as a historian I write about British history I don't feel I know that much about American history it feels like it's a big topic uh, and I've always been slightly daunted uh, by approaching it as a British podcast so I was quite glad that (laughs) that you tackled that one and that we can put it out this way and I don't have to uh, get my hands dirty so to speak (laughs) but it, it is a really interesting topic and I think that 
I, it had never occurred to me that there are links between uh, the Vietnam situation and something like City on the Edge of Forever. So I think it's really interesting the way that Darren draws these things together. And it's it's sort of his specialism, I would say, in terms of the kind of criticism that he does. I mean, he writes a lot about the 90s and the kind of zeitgeist and the, the ideas that are sort of floating around at the time and how they feed into, uh, say, something like Star Trek Voyager. He's been on this podcast talking about how these kind of you know 90s ideas sort of feed into that obviously he writes about the x-files and uh how kind of 90s ideas and and also the legacy of world war ii in that particular moment 50 years on kind of feeds into that and i think this is another one where he's he's very good on the kind of um the stuff that's bubbling around under the surface it's not so much the obvious allegories necessarily it's the kind of um patterns of thought and uh and sort of assumptions and so on that are that are going on and it's a really interesting one and also i think it's interesting because it looks at star trek in a way that is not it, it it's not a monograph you know it's not gene roddenberry's vision and that's what you get it's a a patchwork of different uh people's thoughts at different moments and i think darren is great at kind of teasing that out in quite a specific way so i think it's a really interesting episode and i hope our listeners will enjoy it and um as you say, not everything that you put out in the sanctuary probably fits totally under the remit of primitive culture, but some of them definitely do. And we'll be going through that back catalogue and um, having a look at what we could sort of uh, repackage that might be appealing to our listeners to bridge the gap sometimes when I've got um, a bit of a, uh, a slow production mechanism going on here for, for churning out the latest um, episode because I'm conscious that this used to be a fortnightly podcast and it's sort of now become a monthly podcast and you know some months go by and it doesn't even quite um, hit that target so uh, you know hopefully this will be a way of kind of tidying the listeners over until things calm down a bit for me. Well no I, I hope some of these are of value and there are one or two I think that might that might work here and um, the others will park their way somewhere on the we made this network and be sort of archived but people will still be able to listen to them and if the sanctuary does come back one day great but it's not on my agenda immediately on my agenda first really is to try and get back and do some more recordings with you for primitive culture but again i've mm. got a lot on my plate right now with various different things i mean i'm even cutting back other recordings for other shows um to focus on getting some books written and things like this so more, more towards the summer onwards i think i'll be more available for pc and i'd rather focus on that with you um than, than a completely different track show so um yeah this won't be the last you hear from me this year uh but it's yeah i'm like i say i'm just really glad this is this is on on here now and as a a home where I know it will be listened to by plenty of interested Trek fans. So, um, so yeah, wonderful. Thanks for thanks for letting me do this. It's great. That's all right. It's a pleasure. It's you know easy work for me. <laughs> I don't have to do much. So you know. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you for joining me, Tony, and uh, to the listeners. Hope you enjoy this. And if you do, uh, you know you can go and um, dig out the the other episodes of the Sanctuary and listen to them, or perhaps you already have, and this will be a a, a re listen uh, but you may be hearing some of them uh, coming your way again in the near future uh, so enjoy so in this episode is is very much going to be about the the political spectrum when it comes to to vietnam because obviously star trek aired in 1966 and it kind of was created in many ways in the shadow or the you know alongside what was happening in vietnam you know the u.s war in the in the Vietnamese territory, and I think there's definitely, you know, more than a strong argument that quite a lot of Star Trek ends up reflecting not just that conflict, I suppose, but the broader 
aspect of what that conflict is saying and what he's doing to like American society at the time. Um, very much so. I mean, like, again, this is the thing where any piece of art cannot help but reflect the culture that created it. And again, this is the thing where Star Trek, as much as, you know, we might talk about Star Trek's vision of the future and what it means for the future, a lot of Star Trek, and, and not just the original series, you can talk about, say, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager in this context as well, reflects the world that created it and kind of offers a mirror back to it. And I mean, we're going to talk about Vietnam in this episode, but you could just as easily talk about things, for example, like the counterculture movement, uh, hippies, youth movement, anxieties about social unrest, civil rights, all of those things bubble and simmer through the original series and kind of create a kind of a context where it's almost like looking through a time machine. And you're not looking forward to the 23rd century, you're looking back to 1960s, seeing those anxieties kind of reflected on screen. And what's fascinating about this, and again, this is what, again, I'm, I'm at the risk of boring your listeners about it, but what I find personally fascinating about this is that because this is an artifact of the time in which, say, the Vietnam War was happening or the counterculture was unfolding, it's not just a statement about them. It's not just a single cohesive metaphor for it. It's actually a conversation that's taking place. And it's a conversation that you can see growing and changing over the course of the season, over the course of the series from 1966 through to 1969. But it's also a conversation between various different voices. And you can almost hear that within the writer's room about what's the best way to look at the Vietnam War. Are we cynical about it? Are we hopeful about it? Do we see it as a grim necessity or is it a farce of American exceptionalism taken to extremes? And you can see all of those discussions playing out over the course of the show. And again, through metaphor, which is that wonderful vehicle of science fiction, where you don't have to be direct about it. And again, there's even an argument to be made that sometimes the writers might have been writing about it without explicitly realizing it or without explicitly intending it, just kind of soaking it in kind of just ambient background noise. I'm really really looking forward to this discussion yeah that's a great summation really because i think it's there are definitely episodes there's the sort of I've, I've thought about four potentially key episodes i think that would be interesting to sort of arc this discussion around that are four episodes actually that came out of the work of a writer called called h bruce franklin who wrote some has written some great pieces on the connections between star trek and the vietnam war and he cited particularly four episodes that i think are really interesting to talk about a private little war the Omega Glory, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, and also City on the Edge of Forever, which may not necessarily immediately seem like something that is has a sort of Vietnam underlying connection to it, being one of Star Trek's most famous stories. But there is actually some interesting ideas to be drawn from that episode that sort of link to that ongoing conversation, as you say, about Vietnam. So... I think we're going to try and arc this, this discussion around kind of those four episodes. And there, may, there are others. I mean, there absolutely are others. When you were talking to me about this, Darren, you were throwing other episodes out there um, that might, you know, will we'll obviously factor in. But I think, you know, Star Trek is is really sort of in potentially in these three or four episodes, really sort of delving into certain aspects, certain different aspects of this that'll be interesting to talk about. But I suppose to, to start off with, what I'd be interested in in finding out from you, really, and what your take on this is is quite how Star Trek approaches Vietnam in a political sense. Because, obviously, Vietnam comes off the back of a political 1960s for the American people, which has been particularly difficult. You know, you start off early in the in the decade, you've got the assassination of JFK, which is a massive marker. You've got the Cuban Missile Crisis just before that, which brings... America and Russia to the brink of war and he's sort of the, 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 essentially the peak of the Cold War in many ways and then you have the assassination of Ngo Dinh Diem the US installed proxy leader of South Vietnam 
in a coup, which is one of the major major triggers for you know the Vietnam War. And the the administration that Kennedy had moves into the Johnson administration, and things start to change, and things start to grow potentially a little bit more direct in terms of U.S. involvement. And and, and I think I think it's by the time we get to 1966, the hawkish elements in the US administration have sort of grown to the point that potentially Vietnam is becoming that kind of divisive conflict that sort of splits in in many ways a lot of the society down the middle. So the question I'd ask you is, do you think, and this isn't something you can answer with a yes or no, but do you think that Star Trek approaches Vietnam from a particularly liberal or a particularly conservative viewpoint, or is it kind of a consistent ongoing mesh of those two standpoints? Yes. <laughs> no, uh, but, but, but more, more, more seriously, though, and again, this is one of the things that we kind of, we lose sight of, is this idea of Star Trek as a monolith. Again, this is something that kind of, like, has solidified and calcified over the decades, because we tend to think of Star Trek as a single cohesive entity. We tend to think of Star Trek as something that has a particularly uh, internal coherence to it and internal continuity. And, you know, arguably it does, uh, to be fair, for a franchise that is as old as it is, its internal continuity is relatively solid. But we tend to that what that tends to do is it tends to erase say the importance of authors and the importance of context in terms of writing for the show in terms of kind of how the show is driven in terms of what the show is saying um, and there's a tendency to assume things about star trek that have kind of been nurtured to a certain extent by gene roddenberry particularly when he was working the convention circuit after the show ended and even after he you know kind of got ousted from the franchise after the motion picture and before the next generation where he kind of built up this mythology around star trek about what star trek was and you get a lot of that in in terms of discussions online and ideals and statements of what the franchise is supposed to represent. Um, and again, a lot of this is accurate. A lot of it's true in terms of the franchise is diverse. The franchise is, I would argue, generally liberally leaning. I think that there are very serious discussions to be had about extended periods of the franchise history in terms of that. I think that, for example, Voyager, and again, this is not derail the conversation, it's an interesting conversation to have in terms of that view of liberal American self-identity. But... I think particularly when you get to the original Star Trek, and particularly when you get to the subject of Vietnam, the idea that Star Trek has a single coherent, cohesive point that can be drawn out on Vietnam is perhaps a little oversimplistic. The idea that Star Trek can be reduced to being pro or anti-Vietnam is a little bit kind of oversimplistic, a little bit facile. It tends to reduce the show down to assume that the show is the work of kind of a single author working from a single intent, trying to espouse a single viewpoint, which isn't necessarily how it actually worked. And again, you can see this throughout now, very, very briefly. I know we're going to talk about four episodes in particular, but just to kind of lay the groundwork a little bit, you have a number of very strong, very distinct voices in the writer's room guiding Star Trek and defining what Star Trek will be. One of them, and I would argue perhaps the most important in the context of what we're going to discuss today, and the most overlooked in general, is obviously Gene L. Kuhn. Anybody who is a fan of Star Trek will know Gene L. Kuhn's uh, name. He's one of the most influential writers on the show, uh, one of the best writers on the show, and was responsible for guiding the show uh, during its late first season and into the second season, and responsible for establishing a lot of the tropes and conventions that we associate with, for example, Starfleet, for example, the Federation. The Klingons, Gorn, all those sort of elements, those all kind of came from Kuhn as a writer. And what's remarkable about Kuhn um, is that he has 
what might be described as a kind of a cynicism comes across as something of a grumpy old man. He's got this kind of wariness of authority. And again, it reflects itself in a variety of different ways, sometimes not even directly related to the Vietnam War. For example, Kuhn, I believe, was responsible for the polish on Metamorphosis, which is a story about a Federation delegate who's on her way to a very important meeting, but meets Efren Cochran, falls in love. So Kirk just says she died and goes back about his business because two people falling in love is much more important than anything the Federation wants to do. Um, one of the stock kind of characters in a Kuhn script is the character of like the obstructive federation representative the idea of a higher authority who's come on to kirk and basically is going to tell him how to do his business and basically kind of infringe and kind of like press down from above so kuhn has this kind of wariness of kind of authority and this wariness of kind of government officials and sort of this wariness of there being an official party line under Kuhn, the Federation and Starfleet are treated with a degree of suspicion and cynicism. And this is particularly true when it comes to matters of foreign intervention. Take, for example, the script for Irina, the episode that very famously features Kirk wrestling a Gorn. In that episode, it initially seems like the Gorn have attacked a Federation colony and massacred everybody there. That is very much the case. However, it is subsequently revealed that actually the Federation had been encroaching into Gorn space, and therefore the matter is not as simple as it might initially have appeared to be. Or take, for example, and I know we're not discussing as part of this episode, but A Taste for Armageddon, uh, which is an episode that Kuhn, that was allegedly inspired by the reading of casualty figures on the evening news uh, in response to Vietnam, uh, which the writers saw as being something that dehumanized the conflict, reduced it to a series of numbers. A Taste of Armageddon is a story about societies that have basically learned to stage war using a computer simulation, and instead of damaging infrastructure, will just vaporize people based on on the calculation of the damage done by a blast that was, you know, launched by a computer. And therefore, it kind of strips out any of the red-blooded horror of war. And that is an episode that is very critical of the way in which Vietnam was being presented and sold to the audience. Or take, for example, Kuhn's script for Errand of Mercy, which is the episode that introduced the Klingons. And again, Klingons are important because, and again, not to derail us too much, are a stand-in for, and depending on when you're watching, the Chinese and or the Russians. And very overtly so. They are the party that serve as a proxy opponent for the Federation. And in Errand of Mercy, they go to Organia, which is a small developing planet, which may or may not sound familiar in the context of the Vietnam War, and stage their proxy war there. Now, Errand of Mercy is very explicit in its condemnation of both the Klingon Empire, as represented by Kor, but also the Federation, as represented by Kirk. Kirk is gung-ho. Kirk is aching for a fight. Kirk wants conflict. Kirk wants to beat the Klingons. Kirk is very much in the wrong here. It's very much a story that is skeptical of Kirk's kind of motivations and what's pushing Kirk to intervene in this society. So there's an inherent kind of wariness of, say, interventionism there um, that very much kind of reflects a skepticism around, say, Vietnam. And again, you could arguably extrapolate that even further to, say, The Devil in the Dark, which is about learning to respect the other and to see the other as an entity deserving of respect and autonomy, which is, again, another Gene Alcun trope. So that's one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you have Roddenberry himself. And again, Roddenberry is a complicated figure. If you listen to Roddenberry himself, you would believe that he was a dove. He was born very much as a pacifist. And he always believed that Star Trek was supposed to be a utopian and idealized vision of the future. And we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be talking about a private little war later on. So I'm going to, you know, put a pin in that. I will say that, you know, he did come out and he did sign a letter in June 1968 protesting the Vietnam War with a variety of other science fiction writers, including 
including Ursula Le Guin. I believe that was published in Galaxy magazine. Um, so there is form there. However, when you look at the substance of Roddenberry's scripts, Roddenberry is a lot less questioning and skeptical of authority than Kuhn. Roddenberry's a lot less likely to challenge the official line such as it exists. Notably, again, you can see examples of this in the fact that Roddenberry's scripts tend to place a heavy emphasis on procedure and protocol, very much invested in the militarism of Star Trek, which is ironic, given that Roddenberry, when The Next Generation came around, would be one of the writers pushing very heavily for the idea that Picard expresses that Starfleet is not a military. But to pick an obvious example, within Roddenberry's script for The Savage Curtain in the third season, you discover that Starfleet apparently has protocols for greeting the President of the United States, should they happen to find him floating through space on a space chair. But even, say, for example, Roddenberry script for the turnabout intruder, which spends an inordinate amount of time on the processes and mechanics of a court-martial experience in the middle of what is essentially a body swap story, which is a very strange choice, but again speaks to Roddenberry's fascination with structures and military service and the role that that plays. As a result, I would argue Roddenberry is not as inherently sceptical of Vietnam as Kuhn is. And again, you can see this in any number of scripts. If you want to pick an example... Roddenberry was responsible for introducing the archetypal crew liberates indigenous population from an evil computer that has converted them to a wrong religion story, which again plays as an obvious parallel for certain patriotic narratives of Vietnam. Um, in particular, the idea that Vietnam was about a liberal democracy rescuing a developing nation from the evil clutches of communism. And again, the fact that the computers, uh, and again, three of these stories, one in each season, uh, Return of the Archons uh, in the first season, The Apple in the second season, and For the word, World is Hollow and I have touched the sky in the third season, all of which follow the exact same pattern. And the idea is Kirk arrives in a primitive society, discovers that that primitive society is being destroyed or controlled or manipulated manipulated by a computer that has run amok and has in basically installed itself as a god. And the idea is, again, the parallels are not too hard to draw. Communism is the idea that it kind of, you know, enslaves people. The only reason that you believe communism is because you're a zealot, obviously, and you haven't been convinced of the righteous rationality of the market. That's the only reason that you could possibly invest in communism, according to that rhetoric. But even, say, the use of the computer, and again, that speaks to other anxieties about stuff like automation, which I'm sure you'll talk about in some future episode. But the idea of a computer representing communism speaks the idea of or the anxiety that uh, demo democracies and particularly the American democracy felt about the communist states in the 60s and, and beyond the idea that these organizations were dispassionate the idea again that Stalin quote which everybody learns in school about the death of a million people being a statistic so the idea is that Kirk and the Enterprise exist in contrast to that view and again so you get this sense throughout Star Trek that Roddenberry isn't as skeptical of the Vietnam War, uh, again, as Kuhn is. And again, I, I'd recommend any number of books on this. These are The Voyages by Mark Cushman. I know that there are some issues with his uh, research and accuracy, but they contain a lot of, you know, direct examples and actual primary sources, which are very worth reading in terms of kind of, um, you know, in terms of actual memoirs and memos that are sent back and forth. And you get a sense of kind of scripts that Roddenberry had a hand in shaping, even if he doesn't have a direct credit on them. So take, for example, Friday's Child, which is another example of a story about a primitive planet in which the Federation and the Klingons come head to head, uh, which is written by DC Fontana. But there's a sense in the memos that went back and forth that Roddenberry had a key hand in shaking it. But you have this idea, again, of a proxy war being raged between the Federation and the Klingons. But in contrast to, say, 
Kuhn's cynicism of that proxy war, Kuhn's condemnation of both the Federation and the Klingons for subjecting this seemingly primitive um, society to their own kind of ideological war. Friday's Child is much more gung-ho. Friday's Child is very much in the sense of, well, actually, it turns out the Federation does have to save this population from those evil, manipulative, cynical Klingons that are trying to take advantage of them. And so you do have this sense that kind of Roddenberry maybe believes what it is. Now, we're going to talk some specific examples later on. Um, I don't know if you included the Omega Glory um, in your four key episodes. So, yes, we'll talk about that. That is a very particular and very specifically Roddenberry example, which we'll talk about in depth. But yeah, so you have this push and pull where whether Star Trek believed that the Vietnam War was a tragic necessity in order to ensure the safety and security, not only of the United States as a whole, but also the population of Vietnam from these outside and perverse influences on it. Or, alternatively, the Vietnam War was this horrible proxy war that was being staged for American self-image and self-gratification. And you could have these two kind of forces pulling at one another over the course of the show's run in ways that were interesting and kind of shocking and startling. And again, these stories would often change from one draft to the next, to be absolutely clear. It's often hard to directly attribute authorship. The story Mirror Mirror, for example, was originally supposed to open with Kirk providing weapons to an indigenous population to help them fight off a potentially hostile alien invader and then over the course of several drafts morphed into the version of Mirror Mirror that we know and love which is one that is about a pacifist society and then confronts Kirk with the horrors of an imperialist mirror to himself which again you can read in the context of Vietnam as a reflection of well what is American self-image in the late 60s so again you have this idea of kind of like this theme running through the show where not only individual episodes are in conversation with each other, but they're in conversations with themselves on that initial on that journey from initial pitch through to the version that makes it onto the television screen, the DVD box at the Blu-ray and the streaming service. It's fascinating. It is. And it feels like Vietnam is sort of like a spectre that is there right from the beginning. I mean, even the, the, the original pilot episode of The Cage was delivered in February 1965, and that was the same month that Lyndon B. Johnson, just elected as president, having won his official ter- first term in office, began a, uh, the, the war sort of started when he began a bombing campaign against North Vietnam, right from that early days, you know, even before the show fully aired as a premiere. And to quote Franklin, the, the, uh, uh, the writer I mentioned earlier, He said that by the time the first Star Trek episode was broadcast in September 1966, the United States was fully engaged in a war that was devastating Indochina and beginning to tear America apart. By the time the final Star Trek episode uh, was aired in June 1969, Turnabout Intruder, as you've mentioned, the war seemed endless, hopeless and catastrophic. Four episodes that were broadcast between the spring of 1967 and January 1969 The most crucial period in the war and for America relate directly to the war. And these are the four episodes that we're going to talk about. Taken as a sequence, these four episodes dramatise a startling and painful transformation in the war's impact on both the series and the nation. And I think it's it's really interesting to look at what you're saying in the context of, of, of some of these episodes. Let's start with The City on the Edge of Forever, because... Um, that was the first one that aired in this sort of sequence of episodes. And obviously, every, pretty much everyone, I think, listening will know the plot of City on the Edge of Forever. It's the story where Bones gets injects himself with Cordrazine, 
jumps through the Guardian of Forever, goes, finds himself back in 1930s uh, New York, changes the past so that Joan Collins' Edith Keeler, a pacifist, survives, and she then is the is the you know the butterfly the butterfly effect that leads the Americans not to get involved in World War Two and completely changes the future to the point the Nazi, Nazi Germany win the war, and so Kirk and Spock going back to save McCoy have to make sure that time runs as it should and Edith dies at the end. Now that's obviously a really famous Star Trek episode, but I think it's not one. I mean, when when, when I mentioned this to you, Darren, immediately you said actually yeah that is one that is that is allegorical in terms of the vietnam war more than people give it credit for so what why i mean why i mean it's it's not on first glance that kind of episode that you would you would associate with this but i but i think it definitely does have a connection here absolutely and again this is the thing where when you think of star trek and vietnam you tend to think of episodes like the apple like a private little war there's no mistaking what those episodes are about in capital letters but you have the city on the edge of forever which is this meditation it normally looks to be about the second world war and again it's it's the episode that comes one episode from the end of the season and effectively establishes the star trek universe as being rooted in america's victory in the second world war like it's quite interesting that the nazi victory in the second world war doesn't create a parallel universe where people are riding around in kind of like death skull cap versions of the enterprise there's just nothing if america loses the first of the second world war there is no star trek future at all which is kind of fascinating and i've always thought kind of very revealing of kind of what star trek represents in the american psyche but in terms of vietnam and this is where it gets interesting is that the City on the Edge of Forever is effectively a story about the limitations of pacifism. It's a story about the idea that sometimes there is a need to fight. It's the idea that sometimes there is a cause that you need to stand up to and you need to justify getting involved with. Sometimes it's not enough to stand on the sidelines and sometimes it's it's not enough to believe in kind of virtue and the ability of conversation diplomacy to ensure a necessary outcome. And again, this is very much in the context of 1967. You know, this is, again, we're not anywhere near, say, the Tet Offensive. We're still early in the war. We're still, like, again, we're very, very close to A Taste of Armageddon and its commentary on how the war is being sold to the American public as a, a bunch of facts and statistics and something that's happening very far away and something very abstract. And so The City on the Edge of Forever offers an abstract justification for a war that to audiences is still at a remove from them. It says... Sometimes you need to fight and sometimes you need to fight about an abstract concept that seems to be far, far, far removed from where you are at the moment. Kirk could not be further removed from New York City. Again, he's in the 23rd century. He's on a spaceship. He's traveling around encountering these strange alien objects that can send him back in time. There's no real tangible connection between him and Edith Keeler in 1930s New York. But at the same time, the two are linked by an invisible thread. If Edith Keeler stops the war, the Second World War, which happened centuries before Kirk was born on a planet many, many light years away from where he is at the moment, Kirk will cease to exist. Therefore, the war is necessary. And so you have this kind of justification on kind of moral and philosophical grounds, this idea that sometimes as hard as it might be and as uncomfortable as it might make us you know, feel, 
the war is necessary. And that is absolutely 110% true. And the City on the Edge of Forever understands this and very cannily does this in the context of the Second World War, which in the grand history of American military conflict, the Second World War is the good war. The Second World War is the war that was fought to defeat tyranny. It was the war that ended the Holocaust. It featured the liberation of the Jews from concentration camps. It vanquished the Nazis uh, from their hold over Europe. It saved Britain. It basically held the world together at a point where it seemed like it might fall to pieces. The Second World War in American consciousness is the war that basically was fought for good reasons. There's no compromise there, as opposed to, say, the debate that exists obviously over Vietnam in hindsight, but also arguably at the same time in the counterculture and in the fringe press. But even subsequently, you know, wars that took place in, say, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan in more recent memory, where those have the same sort of debate and kind of tarnished legacy and kind of questions of, is this worth it? Is this a war that we should be fighting? And so the City on the Edge of Forever tries to make an argument, again, allegorically, and metaphorically and not directly, but very subtly and very persuasively, that Vietnam should be seen as a war equivalent to the Second World War. It's a war about principle. It's a war about what's right. And it's a war that will have very serious consequences. It's that that interesting contradiction, though, at the heart of this, because at the time you have, uh, you know, the peace movement was in full flow, you know, when the city on the edge of forever was broadcast uh, that that January, twenty to thirty thousand people had organised a human being um, in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. Um, so you know, just a stone's throw away from Starfleet headquarters. <laughs> You're looking at it from that point of view. Martin Luther King Jr. was giving you know rousing anti-war speeches to crowds of thousands in Chicago and New York City. In June of that year, Lyndon B. Johnson was met by an enormous anti-war rally in LA the, the first one actually in which protesters and riot police clashed and but the, yeah at the same time you had operation junction city happening in north vietnam which was an 82 day airborne operation the largest by the US military since operation market garden in world war 2 so it's it's interesting how you've got this push pull going on in domestically in America as to whether or not this is this is a good thing. Should should the peace movement be you know taking command of this? Should we should we be over there? Should we be fighting this? This is this equivalent to the Second World War? And I think you know history has sort of suggested that that no, you know the, the, it wasn't a war that needed to be fought necessarily. Certainly not at the cost of the amount of lives that went over there. But it's, it almost seems like. Star Trek falls on the pro-war argument in this episode in, yeah, a, in a strange way, and and but that but that's really odd, <laughs> don't you think? In an episode about a pacifist, well, that seems it, very strange. It again, and to be fair to the city on the edge of forever, it's very clearly sympathetic to Edith Keeler. And again, this is something that's interesting to note in terms of evolution, in terms of theme that runs through the show. You have this kind of shifting, awkward attitude towards uh, the counterculture and towards young people in general, where the show is inherently sceptical of the counterculture to a large degree. And again, you can see this to pick like really small examples that aren't directly correlated to anything, but just generally speak to a young people are scary right now attitude. Episodes like, say, Miri and Charlie X early in the first season, or the Squire of Gothos, in which like a child is basically <laughs> tortures the Enterprise and has to be told by his parents it's time to come in. But more seriously, when you get to this anxiety around, say, pacifism, which was seen as kind of in the late 
late 60s, something associated with young people, a young counterculture movement. You look at episodes like, say, This Side of Paradise, um, which is an episode about a kind of an idealized kind of youthful community, which basically gives up the idea of work and basically just sit around all day and have this idealized existence. And it's very much, it is sympathetic to them. It is compassionate to them. It's certainly very far removed from the cold and brutal cynicism of, you know, and the children shall lead in the third season or the way to Eden, which is very much like we're in the late 60s now. You know, we're sort of in the middle of kind of the Manson vibe, sort of. We're very worried about where the hippies are going. In like 1967, there's a real sense of the kids are maybe a little bit confused and just need straightening out. So in this side of paradise, you know, the they're well-meaning, but they're being influenced by, again, mind-altering substances, in that case, spores, which are leading them to not think clearly. But even in The City on the Edge of Forever, you have Edith Keeler, who is a pacifist, who is well-meaning, who is treated with a great deal of respect and admiration uh, within the narrative. Kirk falls in love with her. And again, the casting uh, there is absolutely uh, phenomenal. Joan Collins is amazing. There's a reason that The City on the Edge of Forever is one of the most loved episodes, and the casting of Edith Keeler is a huge part of that. So the show is, again, not entirely cynical. This is, I would argue, far from the worst and most full-throated kind of pro-war argument the show makes, but it is a pro-war argument nonetheless, and it gets the sense in which, you know, we tend to think of Star Trek as very liberal and left-leaning by tradition, and it isn't always the case and because it isn't always easy to break these things down we use like the term left and right to describe political positions but it's really often more nuanced than that in terms of people but also in terms of kind of stories it's very hard to draw a clear line or a clear binary like i think the city on the edge of forever is a beautiful piece of work it's an incredibly moving love story and i think it's a much more compassionate pro-war argument than, and again, some of the episodes I named, like Friday's Child, for example, or The Apple, which are much more cynical and much more direct and much more ruthless in advancing the argument they want to make. The City on the Edge of Forever, I honestly believe comes from a place of earnestly thinking that we're in the middle of an existential struggle that is equivalent to the Second World War and believing that that argument needs to be made as opposed to something that feels a bit more uh, cynical in, in an execution, which I think we get later on. Yeah, and to be to be fair as well, I think I think it's fair that it does make that, you know, alternate argument, really. You know, because it he's trying to essentially say that... Edith Keeler is dying for the greater good, you know, and that, that, that what she believes in is dying for the greater good. Ultimately, we will get through, even though we have to face this terrible war and all these deaths and, you know, future wars to come in the Star Trek future history, it'll be worth it in the end. We'll, we'll get to a point where we have the Enterprise, we have the crew, we have Starfleet, we have all these things. So it's, it's, perhaps, it's perhaps in that sense saying that, you know, the ends justify the means. But I, th- I think it's, it, it is interesting. I suppose it would have been, it would have been more of a... From our from our point of view, perhaps we look back and we think, well, it would have been, you know, peace would have been a great thing. But at the same time, it never is that easy. You know, it's never that. It's, it, there's always a complication to it. So I think I think it explores that really well. And it's not as explicit in terms of necessarily being directly about Vietnam as probably the, the next episode, which is a private little war. Which is probably that's probably the the most direct Vietnam allegory the show ever really does. It's basically the Vietnam episode. Um, yeah, it kind of is, isn't it, really? You know, it's it's the one on the planet Neural where Kirk has a history with a young man called Tyree and they're observing a primitive species who brandish only like bows and arrows and they're in that pre-civilization point of development. 
and then they witness a rival village being armed with flintlock flintlock pistols like centuries ahead of where they should be technologically um, by the Klingons and there Kirk and McCoy become convinced that the Klingons are influencing this other village in order to gain control of Norel's population as a you know as as the proxy and in this sense, you know, and then Kirk basically goes, in or, you know, attempts to arm the Tyrese people in order to equal the scales. So it's it's very much that the position of Kirk and his crew being America, you know, the Klingons being the the Russians essentially, and then you have Neural in the middle, which is the Vietnam. And it's 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 fascinating how they did this. You know, this aired in February 1968, and at the time you had the Tet Offensive happen, which was three days before where the Viet Cong launched like this semi-suicidal assault that turned sort of areas of South Korea into like raging combat zones. So you had this all over the news. And although obviously, you know, they weren't writing this three days before and they didn't know this was necessarily going to happen. It's one of those episodes that at the time, I think, would have been really fueled by these images on the news that might have you know, added to the to the to what essentially a private little war was trying to say. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting in the context of kind of the Vietnam kind of war, and particularly like the context of people that we think of as being kind of doves. Like the the original draft or the original pitch. Again, I, I mentioned that like these stories are constantly changing. Um, you can read the pitch on I think it's Orion Press fanzines. Um, it was originally Tyree's Woman was I believe the name of the pitch, and it was a lot more explicitly cynical. Think of it as something a lot closer to as I mentioned, Errand of mercy in terms of like explicitly condemning Kirk's intervention and it's notable that again and again this is a memo that you can find online at Star Trek Fact Check which is a wonderful resource you have Gene Roddenberry and again Roddenberry who in subsequent years and arguably in subsequent months given that he signed that letter to Galaxy Magazine would begin reinventing himself as a pacifist but writing a a memo on the original pitch from the writer Ingel saying you know what he's saying here what's he saying here don't screw up simpler societies if he's aiming for a Vietnam theme, that certainly can't be. The things at stake in Vietnam are much more important and powerful than a charitable attitude towards simpler people in the world, uh, which is very much a sense of Roddenberry being cautious about putting out something that could be perceived as being anti-patriotic or running against the pervasive narrative of Vietnam as the script was being developed and written. And you're entirely right that it was obviously written, developed and shot long before the Tet Offensive happened, but just happened to be broadcast in the wake or in the middle of it, meaning that it basically feels like it's stuck of two different worlds. And I think you kind of, you mentioned uh, H. Bruce Franklin um, is, is the kind of writer that you've kind of alluded to a couple of times here. And he's written a lot about Vietnam, a lot about pop culture. He's made the argument specifically about a private little war that even discounting that, and again, it's a perfectly understandable thing, you can't write for the Tet Offensive um, knowing that it's going to happen in the future, because even the American army weren't able to draw the connections between the movement of trucks in North Vietnam to the eventual offensive. But Franklin's made the argument that actually the version of Vietnam portrayed in a private little war or kind of the allegory for Vietnam portrayed in a private little war was outdated even by the time the episode entered production. He kind of, he describes the episode as referring more clearly to the period of covert US involvement prior to the assassination of Diem in 1963 rather than the open war of 1968. And so you have this sense that like Star Trek was kind of struggling to keep 
pace uh, with the Vietnam War, which again is understandable. And and you could argue that even in the modern world, we have that. Like, how can pop culture keep pace with everything that's happening so quickly? And again, even if you want to pick another example, if you jump forward to, say, 2001, Enterprise spent two years struggling with the legacy of kind of 9-11 and the emergence of the war on terror before finally kind of grasping the nettle in its third season and actually writing about it and engaging with the idea. But it is interesting that A Private Little War is a Vietnam episode that feels out of time even as it was broadcast yeah yeah it's true it is true actually it's it's I, I, I suppose it's trying to sort of you know advance that that key idea that the americans are the good guys you know in that in that sense you know it, it is that idea that that tyree's people are the good guys the people that kirk attempts to arm are the good guys and that you have the klingons representing the evil empire and it's interesting because franklin does make the point actually that it, it, even Americans were starting to see that there was there were there were more shades to this. You know, he says, even though it's sort of promoting that sort of official a U.S. administration version of of the Vietnam War, millions of Americans were discovering the war had begun as a defense of an existing empire, which was France, against an indigenous movement for national liberation, and then transformed into a war of conquest by another nation attempting to advance its own imperial interests in Southeast Asia the US. And that's kind of what you were getting at there when you talk about it being more of a covert kind of thing. It's interesting that it's it, this kind of episode is sort of trying to keep pace, well, I suppose, with the idea that the American public are seeing this war differently. As we head into like 1968, it's not, it's becoming less about going out there and saving the world, quote unquote, that we would have seen in World War II. But this is, this is causing no benefit for domestically for Americans and so many people are dying. So many of the boys are going out there and dying in this conflict in this in this land far away. And for what? And I think I think it's I suppose do you think maybe is this episode trying to just in some way trying to justify that in a way while also pointing out how how much of a desperate sort of situation it is yeah i mean it's very clear watching the episode that again this is where you get the contrast between say coon's cynicism of kirk and the federation starfleet with i would argue roddenberry's kind of influence on this and again it's worth noting the credits on this i think include coon and include roddenberry as well and there's a sense of like authorship is very hard to determine but i would argue that the portrayal that you see here is an extension of kind of roddenberry's perspective where it's tough and it's hard and Kirk really, really, really doesn't want to do it. The episode repeatedly stresses that Kirk is uncomfortable supplying these weapons. Kirk doesn't think this is, you know, the ideal thing to do. Kirk's hands is base- are basically forced by the circumstances around him. He has no choice. It is the least bad of all the worst possible options. And again, there's this sense of kind of the shifting view of the Vietnam War, and I would argue in Star Trek as well, where in the first season you have kind of the, the the romantic allegory of something like the city on the edge of forever which was like no sometimes war is necessary because it's right and it's just and it has to be versus by the time you reach this point in the second season which is okay sometimes you don't want to fight a war sometimes there is no principled reason for doing it but you absolutely have to there's a sense almost that even in what is a pro-vietnam allegory because it is because it ends with kirk giving him the guns and again there's a sense of there's a real awkward sense of the tragedy of you know uh, the tragedy of this episode being that well kirk has to like 
be soiled by giving him the guns. Kirk has to make this transgression. Isn't it terrible for Kirk that he has to compromise himself in this way and do this thing that will make him feel really bad about it, as opposed to the actual suffering of people on the planet that will be caused by giving the guns? Because obviously, as, as you point out, it's a story that is meant for American audiences and is meant to suit the American narrative of the war. And there's this sense that I think, you know, as you kind of alluded to, the anti-war movement kind of gaining momentum at this time over the course of the summer you had those big protests the clashes with riot police and the kind of the rising of prominence of that protest um so even before the tet offensive this kind of sense of well we need to shift gears the narrative is no longer we should do this full throttle because it's the right thing to do the narrative is now this is the only thing that we can do. There is no other alternative to it. It's terrible and it's sad and we don't like this any more than you do, but it is a moral responsibility that rests on our shoulders. Um, and it's kind of, it is, you can see that narrative kind of being almost switched within the story. Do you think that's Roddenberry more than Kuhn then? Because, you know, you say that Kuhn has more of a cynicism towards this do you think that Roddenberry and maybe based on some maybe based on some of Roddenberry's wartime experiences you know which people have have discussed before and you know we may well talk about on this podcast at some point but you know does, does do you think he feels there's a moral imperative to doing this even if it's even if it's a terrible thing that has to be done you know going over there and fighting this war as obviously based on the, the bigger geopolitical conflict of the cold war which looms all over this and we're not necessarily talking too much about the cold war as a as an entity in this episode but it's there and it hovers over everything that happens in vietnam this ideological conflict between you know the american way and the, and the communist evil quote unquote i mean do you think that for all for all of a of a pacifist that roddenberry painted himself for all of a liberal he painted himself do you think that that he had genuine sort of conservative moral concerns here that were justified in terms of how he portrays this yeah. episode? I mean, it, it's worth noting that, again, this was, I think, around the end of Kuhn's involvement in the second season. Um, and basically one of the big conflicts between Kuhn and Roddenberry was that Roddenberry, who had left, I think, to work on a Robin Hood series, came back and thought that Kuhn wasn't taking things seriously. Kuhn had written episodes and comedies, um, like, for example, he commissioned David Gerard to rewrite I, Mud. Um, he'd worked with David Gerard on The Trouble with Tribbles, and then he'd also go on to write a piece of the action as well. And it's notable that both The Trouble with Tribbles and a piece of the action are comedies, but they are explicitly comedies that are very pointedly ridiculing the Vietnam War, where you have the Klingons and the Federation fighting over Sherman's planet um, in The Trouble with Tribbles, and it becomes a source of farce and comedy, and it's ridiculous and absurd. And you have this idea of kind of hyper-capitalists, like the idea of Kirk arriving on a planet that has basically modeled itself so after American ideals that has embraced gangster violence. And Kirk's approach and solution to that is to basically set up a situation where the Federation takes a kickback from them, uh, which again is a very, very cynical perspective of American interventionism. So yeah, I think that like it's not unreasonable to say that Roddenberry kind of balked at that. And again, it's worth noting, like in his later life, Roddenberry would become a lot more avowedly liberal, um, even in terms of, say, the next generation. And again, you can point to things like, say, the emphasis on sexual liberation in uh, the motion picture, which again is, is a podcast of itself, I would argue, but even say the emphasis in Betazoid culture, which he was very influenced and very sort of heavily involved in creating on things like nudity and sex all of the time, which are things that we would associate with kind of a, an almost like parody of a liberal perspective. But even 
in that, even in those later years, when Roddenberry kind of came out as being a very avowedly liberal person who believed in a very strong utopian future, you still had this sense of service and devotion above all in his work. Notably, one of the big final conflicts that Roddenberry had on The Next Generation was over the episode The Measure of a Man, which is the famous data goes on trial to determine whether he's a sentient being episode. And Roddenberry's conflict over that episode, which involves data being ordered by Starfleet to volunteer himself for vivisection, Roddenberry's argument was that this episode made no sense because data should volunteer for vivisection because he believed in that idea of service. Um, And I think you can kind of see that. And it's notable in that memo that I read out there, there is that sense of Roddenberry seeing it almost as a patriotic duty, almost as a responsibility. And again, this is a man who served um, in the armed forces, who was a police officer as well. I entirely believe that he believes in those things and that he thinks that those things are important and I think they shine through. Now, I think he occasionally takes it a bit far, which is probably a nice segue into the talking about the next episode on the list. <laughs> well, yeah, nice, nicely queued up there, yeah, because the <laughs> next one is yeah, the Omega Glory, which was the story uh, towards uh, a little bit later in season two, where I suppose he doubles down on the anxieties about American involvement in Vietnam by uh, casting the uh, uh, the sort of conflict on a, a planet called Omega-4 where the Enterprise arrives and they find the near, nearly abandoned USS Exeter um, commanded by Captain Ron Tracy who's disappeared, gone native on the planet and uh, he's fallen in league with the Cones. Cons, I and, think you mean. Well, the Cons, well, yeah, the Cons. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the Asian tribe... Uh, an Asian tribe who've subjugated the Yangs, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> who are white, fair-skinned, barbaric people um, after a, bio- a devastating biological war, which Tracy's you know gone against the Prime Directive and got himself involved in, mainly because he believes the Cons have like a, a key to immortality, and he's, he's he's sort of gone off the reservation completely. But the key thing with this episode is that when they're captured by the Yangs, Kirk and the crew realise that. There was, there was, there's essentially a duplicate form. I mean, they love their duplicate sort of societies. In, yeah, in that's sort TOS. of like Mirror Earth, basically. Yeah, yeah. Basically. And it's it's a duplicate form of the United States itself, with the American Constitution as like their holy text. And he, and he ends up trying to unite them by saying, "Follow, follow we the people. Follow the American Constitution as your way of developing peaceful coexistence." I mean, it's. I, sp- I suppose there are more like overtly sort of, I mean, patterns of force is probably the most overtly sort of, wow, you actually went there with Nazi uniforms, you know, kind of thing. But this, this in a, in a, in a different way is, is a little bit like, I mean, it, it's so on the nose, you know, you even have lines like, Yangs, Yanks, Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> and then Spock's like, Combs communists <laughs> like i like that it you know, took kirk three steps and it only takes spock two yeah um, well he's logical you know yeah. he's figuring it out but it's it's you know you have to resist a heavy groan at that don't you really and us and you know that it's so sort of on the nose in terms of the the parallels it's drawing i mean again like i'm somebody who loves like you mentioned Patterns of Force. I think Patterns of Force is one of the massively underrated episodes of the original series, in large part because I think you can detect a note of self-awareness or parody buried beneath that excess. I think my big issue with the Omega Glory is that there is absolutely no 
subtlety or nuance <laughs> or sophistication there. And again, like it's it's worth noting, like the thing that, and again, this is one of the things where there are episodes of Star Trek that I abhor with every fiber of my being which is grand there are like 700 odds are two or three of them are not going to be winners and you know the omega glory is one of those episodes for me it's just it's an episode that i really don't glom to on any level and it's staggering to me that again and again this is one of the things where you talk about these episodes being out of time and again we talked about it with say you know the idea of a private little war where a private little war you know would obviously have been written before the Tet offensive even happened uh, but i mean the omega glory very famously was one of the original pitches that Roddenberry had for Star Trek. In fact, he actually wow. wanted to develop it um, as the second pilot instead of where no man has gone before. <laughs> and there's a yeah, and again, this is why it becomes why it feels kind of slightly surreal and slightly odd. Is that like even <clears throat> though you get the sense that like the public mood was changing on Vietnam, even though there's a sense that like the public were coming to terms with what was happening over there and the horrors that were unfolding, and people were becoming a bit more cynical about it. You have the Omega Glory, which is an episode that is pretty much a line-by-line justification of american exceptionalism and intervention in vietnam like the idea is like the the kirk refers to the comms as the yellow race um at one point which even in 1968 makes you cringe Uh, but not only that when Kirk has his big moment at the end of realization, and when Kirk has his big kind of moment of, okay, everybody should stop fighting, he does that by reading the Constitution and declaring, these rules are not just for Yangs, they're for comms as well. And it's like, (laughs) this is just effectively like the most full-throated tone-deaf, haven't read the room, pitch for the vietnam war that star trek has ever made this is bolder than something like the the most cynical reading of the city on the edge of forever or you know a private little war because in the city on the edge of forever at least it's saying you know okay pacifism is good and we like pacifism and you know idealists are important and it's just some wars that are necessary to fight and we may have difficulty identifying what those wars are but they do exist and you know a private little war which we mentioned is a bit more like it's really awful that we found ourselves in this situation, but we really have a moral obligation to kind of to, to and a responsibility to kind of see it through. And even though I'm kind of cynical of that, and I see that as a bit kind of self-justifying and kind of self-rationalizing, I can understand where that comes from. The Omega Glory is pretty much the rest of the world needs to bow down and worship the American Constitution. And communists need to be defeated no matter where they are and what they're doing until we beat them into submission and make them accept the American Constitution as the only right way to structure a society. It is dazzling to watch. Um, and it feels so <laughs> out of place. And I, I, I'm sorry. And I know that there are people who love the Omega Glory. And I, I can get that. I can understand why that is. Like it is, there's a lot to like there. I mentioned myself, I like those parallel earth stories. I actually have a huge soft spot for Bread and Circuses. Another Roddenberry script that evolves on a parallel earth a couple of episodes later. But yeah, the Omega Glory for me is, is very much a kind of a tone deaf, like full-throated endorsement of the Vietnam War, um, or at least as I read it. Now, I know I think Franklin disagrees with me on this. Well, I, th- I think there, there is, I don't know if it's a counter-argument to what you're saying, but I suppose it's the idea that maybe Roddenberry 
is at this point afraid that America won't win, you know, and that it's it's almost like a total a total war of it and a total loss, you know, in that the, it, it's perhaps there the the, the, the cynic, maybe the cynicism and the uncertainty about Vietnam and you know the growing peace movement and the fact that it's a war that's been raging for a few years now and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight and there doesn't seem to be any winning of it quote unquote winning there isn't as clearly defined a bad guy maybe as there was in the second world war you know is it is this episode you know sort of seeing like an American civilization regressed and, you know, using that constitution as like a mythical, a mythical template that a, a quote unquote God in, in Captain Kirk has to come down and teach them, you know, how to use and how to be effective. Is it, is it Roddenberry's fear? Is it Roddenberry's fear that they're not going to win Vietnam and they, they need to be writing, you know, television and kind of promoting the idea that, you know, the American way of life is is the good, the right way of life. You know, is that the, is that another way to look at it potentially? I, I I don't know. I mean, that could be stretching it. Well, I mean, to be fair, again, a lot of people involved have made kind of arguments in its defense. Again, it, it's worth noting that Robert Justman uh, very much said that uh, was it. I wrote a memo in which my comments were devastating. However, not wanting to hurt Gene's feelings, I tore up the memo and made a few suggestions orally. He took the advice, but as anyone who has seen the episode knows, it didn't do much good. Um, but you have, on the other hand, you have people like, say, DC Fontana, who, who, who has tried to make an argument over the years in favor of the episode. And what she says is that arguing and again i i'm not convinced by this but i think it, it's you know it's it's necessary to put it forward i think that it's it's to if you want to be charitable to the episode you could probably embrace this idea but you know she said that it's it's not the it's not the idea of the united states as a government is is the kind of is what we're championing here it's the words it's the sentiment behind them it's the idea that we the people you know, inherently deserve or, you know, is, is a belief that is worth celebrating and that we should be careful not to lose sight of. And I think that kind of ties into what you're saying, that fear that America, you know, might lose its way and might regress back to a state resembling the Yangs if it doesn't get a proper run of itself. Um, but again, I find myself just wary of that argument because the, the Yangs are portrayed as kind of noble savages and the episode is very clearly on their side and the comms are portrayed as these kind of almost monstrous other it's very similar to the Klingons, you know, again, and the, the Klingons are their own barrel of kind of issues that you'll probably talk about on another podcast and, and have to discuss <laughs> oh, yeah, to yeah. death as well. I love that I'm like, there's a <laughs> lot of things you're going to want to discuss and unpack if we have more time. But there is like, I, I just, I can't get on board with that subversive reading because the reading that's actually in front of me is just impossible for me to look past. This, this is where you'll have to come back on the podcast, Darren, and talk about the, all these things. We'll have, we'll have to start making notes, right? Darren's <laughs> sequel episodes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it, it is, yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone would, would argue that the Omega Glory is very divisive. You know, it's, it's, it's very much one of those episodes that, you know, people, a lot of people dislike as many as much as many people like you know it's not like the city yeah. of on the edge of the forever which is pretty much Where universally everyone's like regarded. yeah that's great <laughs> yeah you know um so it's it's yeah it is oh. uh it, it is a divisive one i absolutely um, love this detail and i'm sorry i feel like i'm kicking poor gene roddenberry but apparently gene coon was handed the script before the end of the first season and apparently he was so reluctant to actually film it that he wrote two of his own scripts in order to fill the gap and say that he couldn't produce it which i kind of adore i <laughs> kind of love that he's like um so rodney's like i have this script i'd like you to produce like no 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 no. we don't need we're grand we've i'll write two scripts myself rather than make this yeah. Yeah. 
I've written two whole scripts. Look, what are these? <laughs> and apparently one of the other ideas was a portrait in black and white, which is a, a separate podcast onto itself. Roddenberry's slavery epic, as I recall. Oh, um, yeah. OK, oh, wow. but that's a different I podcast. I don't know anything about that. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to come back on and, t- and talk to me about that one. So I've never heard of that, actually. That's wow. OK, there is one final episode to discuss in this context. The, the, the fourth cited example is season three's Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, which is the episode about the uh, uh, the planet Charon and two natives from that planet, one Loki, and Belez a Charon, a Charon official who is hunting Loki, who is considered to be like a, a dangerous political revolutionary. And on the flip side, Loki considers Bele to represent a fascist society, you know, who've kept his people enslaved and committed genocide. And they end up on the Enterprise and it becomes a real battle of wills as they head for Charon in order to sort this out. As um, Bele, you know, is trying to get Loki out of the Enterprise and Loki's trying to get political asylum with the Federation. But then it ends on a real sort of bitter twist in that when they get home, Charon's a ruin and the entire society have wiped each other out in this destructive conflict while these two have been chasing each other. And they uh, they end up on the planet just sort of the last survivors of their race on their, on their quote-unquote, their last battlefield. I think it's... It may, may, this is maybe even less overt than the city on the, on the edge of forever, actually, in terms of the Vietnam War. I don't know, but I think it's... I, I actually, I actually think this is one of the better season three episodes. You know, I think season three it doesn't always have it, and I might be a man alone there. I don't know. I might be Odo. Oh no, no, no. Well, I mean, well, I mean, no, you're, you know, like um, I mean, the general perception is the third sequence this season is weaker than the first two, and I think I'd agree with that. I, I kind of, yeah, I, I think the third season's rather underrated. I think it has a lot of hidden gems, but I'm not necessarily convinced that let that be your battlefields among them. But I'll let you make I, your case first. Well, I just, <laughs> I just find it, I find it interesting. I think what it's, it's not necessarily a brilliantly. I mean, there are there are points of it that drag. I think, but it, it's an interesting story i think in terms of i mean the the key thing about these two is that they are that their their makeup is very specifically about a dichotomy in terms of race in many ways you know you have the 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 half black half black yeah and they're both switched on each other's faces so um loki is black on the right white on the left and belay is white on the right and black on the left so it feels like there's 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 racial connotations underneath their struggle really going on and I think it's, I, I, th- I think it sort of represents a, a level of disquiet in, Ameri- in the American people. You know, I, I, th- I think it's, it, it's interesting how it sort of comes in the, in the sort of shadow of Nixon's uh, election as president in 1969. And he, and, and obviously Nixon ends up being disgraced as, as uh, and Watergate is something I'd love to talk about actually in this podcast at some point. But Nixon sort of got into the White House on the ticket of promising that he'd end the war in Vietnam honorably. And I think I think let there be your let that be your last battlefield is sort of suggesting that they don't that, that Star Trek doesn't necessarily feel there is any honor left in this kind of total war. That in the end these two sides will d- destroy and and you know compromise each other with no end in sight. And I think in that sense, it's also sort of, sort of paralleling the the, um, the, the sort of the, the racial battles going on at the same time. You know, on in in American society, you know, in that the civil right, rights movement is rising. You know, but then at the same time, you've got Martin Luther King, Malcolm X being assassinated, and you've got this real dichotomy 
domestically going on, as well as this this very sort of racially charged war. You know, we talk about that in the Omega Glory, and that you have the very dis- distinguishing yellow the yellow horde other and the you know the white Americans. And I, I just think I just think it's got an interesting mix, and I don't know if it all comes out in this episode. And I don't know if it's a particularly great episode of television, but I think there's a lot bubbling under there that's interesting. Oh, absolutely. Um, and again, this is probably not a review podcast. We should be very clear. The thing about it, let that be your last battlefield, is that you're entirely right. It is very much an episode where everything is simmering beneath the surface. And to, to give an example of that, it's notable that, and this is something that a lot of the later Star Trek spin-offs kind of lose. And I would argue Discovery and Picard begin to reintroduce that. But this is kind of a, a discussion for another time, he says, putting a pin in it. But it's notable that one of the big recurring motifs across the original series is the idea of insanity and the idea of horrors that are so abstract and almost unfathomable that they would drive people insane. Think about the number of insane characters that exist in there, obviously like Matt Decker in the Doomsday Machine, for example. But even think of things like the psychic screening, screaming of the Vulcan ship um, in, I think it's the Intrepid it's called, but in the Immunity Syndrome as well. And this idea of, say, the wave of madness that is spreading across the cosmos um, in episode Operation Annihilate. Um, where entire colonies have succumbed to violence and rage and outbursts of hatred across the world, across the universe. But even say, for example, the presentation of the Mirror Kirk uh, in Mirror Mirror, where he's quite literally an animal in a cage. And there's this sense of kind of rage and anger simmering underneath it all. And again, you can trace a lot of that back to the influence of, say, uh, H.P. Lovecraft. And, and Robert Bloch, who was one of the disciples of Lovecraft, was a writer of great influence on the show, very famously having written Cat's Paw, um, for example, um, and What Are Little Girls Made Of uh, in the first season as well, and introducing kind of Lovecraftian horror into the show's mythology. And what's interesting about Let That Be Your Last Battlefield is that there's a sense that that recurring motif of insanity and instability, and particularly the idea of insanity that is contagious or insanity that spreads or insanity that consumes can be seen in a certain way to reflect the anxieties of America in the late 60s. And you mentioned the anti-war protests, you mentioned the civil rights protests, and kind of how important that is in terms of the context of these episodes and where Star Trek's going and America in the 1970s. And you are absolutely correct. But it's worth noting that Nixon's election was very much rooted in this sense of America as a nation that was falling apart. It wasn't just abroad in Vietnam, it was also domestic as well. Those shots of kind of riot police, of kind of riots outside the 1968 Democratic Convention as well. And the idea that America was itself tearing itself apart um, and very much as a consequence of things like the Vietnam War. And again, there's a sense in which Vietnam has become a kind of a scar which has never really healed in the American psyche. Um up until the, you know, even in the Burman era shows, even if we remain within Star Trek, Vietnam remains a marker of how the bad war is depicted. Think of, for example, the siege of Aor, um, and apologies, I think it's 778, or is it Aor 59? But anyway, the siege of the Aor planet in the seventh season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine um, is very much kind of like 
designed to evoke the horrors of Vietnam uh, rather than the Second World War, or say Nemesis in the fourth season of Star Trek Voyager, which in which Chakotay is kind of recruited into a war against his consent or against his will, is a jungle war in which a village population is brutally murdered, which again evokes the spectre and horror of Vietnam. Think even of Memorial, uh, the episode from the sixth season of Voyager. And again, this is Star Trek in the 90s, is still kind of dealing with these scars and these horrors and these atrocities and this sense that what happened in vietnam with america left these very la uh, these very deep wounds that were not easily resolved and let that be your last battlefield is an interesting episode in a number of ways because it speaks to a desire for reconciliation a desire to heal and to bring things back together because the obvious implication is that if you don't you will be consumed by anger and rage. You'll end up like the two aliens in the episode, that you'll end up just fighting in the ruins of a dead world. And I think that it's kind of interesting that it makes this appeal for unity, because one of the the interesting and perhaps controversial, and I think perhaps more deserving of critical interrogation than it has received issues with Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, is the idea that the episode equates uh, Bella and Loki. And again, it's worth noting in terms of conflict that, you know, Bella thinks that Loki is a dangerous radical and a terrorist or whatever, but Loki is making the argument that the state has oppressed his people, that the state have conducted violence upon his people and have basically kept them trapped in a cycle of abuse and using power that refuses to acknowledge their personhood and their rights. And there's a weird sense in Let That Be Your Last Battlefield that despite raising that issue and that idea of, say, racial oppression and systemic racism, the episode doesn't want to deal with that. The episode wants for everything to be over. It wants for everything to be okay. It wants for Bella and Loki to stop fighting. That's the big argument that it's making. It wants American society to reconcile with itself. It wants things to go back to being normal, or or at least what we can approximate as normal, um, in a way that kind of glosses over all those social divisions that we talked about, all the issues that kind of exist. And again, it's, it's worth noting, you kind of asked the question about whether Star Trek becomes more utopian across its three-year run. And this is kind of interesting, because I think, I think it does. I think the first two seasons are quite skeptical about things like the Federation. They're more liable to treat the Federation as an analogy for America as it exists now, at this moment in time, a reflection of America as it is. I think it's only really when you get to the third season that you begin to properly see this idea of the Federation as an ideal, or the idea of kind of the Federation as a reflection of America as it could be, kind of creep into the show. And I'm thinking, for example, of Is There in Truth No Beauty, uh, which features the introduction of infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And again, you, if you were a cynical person, you would observe that that mantra only exists because Gene Roddenberry wanted to sell hood ornaments uh, via mail order directly to fans, <laughs> and that both William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy fought aggressively to resist the product placement in the episode. But it's still a sweet sentiment. And even beyond that, there's a sense that, like, the Federation is an ideal that's worth kind of aspiring towards. You have episodes like The Empath, which is rooted on the idea of compassion and empathy above all. You have Day of the Dove, which I would argue is the most utopian, idealistic, pacifist episode of Star Trek ever produced, um, and is very much a condemnation of Vietnam in every possible way. It's very much the anti 
uh, version of the city on the edge of forever in that it is an endorsement of pacifism in all scenarios in all cases in its most absolute form um, and you have even episodes like say the lights of zatar which features the establishment of memory alpha which suggests the federation as a place where people come together in contrast to say the portrayal of the andorians tellarites and vulcans in journey to babel in the second season where they can't seem to cohere or agree on absolutely anything so i think that let that let that be your last battlefield kind of belongs in that context in that it is star trek making an appeal for american unity it's making an appeal for the idea of an america where we can come together and we can be as one and if we don't terrible things will happen now i think that it's perhaps a little bit too simplistic in making that argument i think it makes some false equivalences uh between the victims of oppression and the perpetrators of oppression and asks perhaps a bit much in terms of forgiveness and reconciliation without actually putting the work in but i think it does reflect that sense of Again, that sense of longing for utopia, which I think people come to associate with Star Trek. Whenever people talk about Star Trek, they talk about Star Trek as a franchise that is openly utopian. And I think that, and again, this is something that I think I talked about um, with, with our good friend Zach Moore um, on his podcast. This idea of the third season as a place where you really see Star Trek embrace the idea of a future that is not just an extension of the present, but a better version of the present. And let that be your last battlefield is, I would argue, part of that. You, you can, well, you can understand that. I suppose in in the in the idea, you know, if if Vietnam is sort of being considered a bit of a zero sum game, you know, and that there's it's that total annihilation that just isn't very palatable to the American public. Maybe this kind of episode is is the, is part of a season which is sort of wanting to look beyond Vietnam. It's wanting to try and get past it, trying to try and think about what comes next. What are we without this war now that's been dragging on for all this time? I mean, to sum up, then, I mean, what do you think that there is? a particularly sort of powerful a contradictory vietnam legacy within within star trek then i mean i I suppose what we've talked about are episodes that sort of balance the scales between a a definite liberal and conservative push-pull but maybe a show that doesn't completely know where it sits which is perhaps which is perhaps quite effective in the sense that the american people weren't entirely sure either i think at the time and i think Maybe in that sense, Star Trek is quite on the button in terms of reflecting American society and politics at the time because it isn't sure. And I think it's, it, it, that, that seems to become more apparent over time. Absolutely. I mean, again, there's a quote from another science fiction franchise where I want you to, uh, I want you to think. And you know what that is? That's a fancy word for changing your mind. But the ability um, to basically parse and consider and evolve and grow and change is important. And again, this is something that's important, arguably, for Star Trek as a franchise, but also, you know, for a person as an individual, for a nation, for politics and for concepts. The idea that things can change over time as new facts come delight and as the world changes around them and the thing that i really love about the original series and i love it about all the star treks because again you could argue that you know the next generation is very much a product of kind of the late reagan bush and early clinton years and very much reflects american self-image at that point you could argue that voyager kind of follows us through the clinton era into the new millennium and it captures that moment in time perfectly and again you can make the same case for the original for star trek enterprise and the george w bush years that it kind of encapsulates that moment in the way that 
that Star Trek speaks to the late 60s. There's a sense of like being present and being a living document and not quite figuring it out, not having all of the answers and trying to work through it, trying to come to conclusions or make observations or reason things out. And again, that that's a beautiful process because it means that you can be contradictory. You can countenance other arguments. You can look at things from another angle and you can basically see which of those arguments are more convincing in the long term. I mean, I would argue that Day of the Dove has aged a lot better than Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. I think that Errand of Mercy has aged a great deal better than A Private Little War. I think The Trouble with Tribbles and A Piece of the Action are much, much better to watch now than The Omega Glory. And I think that they've been kind of vindicated by time. I think that, like, it's important to have the space in which to make those arguments. It's important to have like the capacity to acknowledge that you might be wrong or you might be on the wrong side of an argument so long as you're developing and exploring it. And I think that's what the original Star Trek was doing with Vietnam. It was very much providing a space in the collective unconscious and arguably even in the, you know, the writers' minds as well, where they could mediate and kind of explore and think about and play with these ideas and work them through in a space that was, you know, safe and removed and abstract, that was kind of isolated from the insanity that was taking place outside their windows and on the nightly news, and kind of follow those ideas to their conclusions. Sometimes those conclusions were convincing, sometimes they weren't, but you never know unless you're willing to develop them, I would argue. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and we're, we're better off for the fact they did. And we can look back at them now, you know, and discuss and unpick and, and wonder about it. And, and it's been really good doing that with you. You're blended all right. 